The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. If you have your Bible, you want to follow along with your, on your phone app or the bulletin, we're looking at Psalm 84. I have a question for you. Um, what part of the worship service, your thought, what part is the most important? Have you ever thought about that? What's the most important part of the worship service? Um, it's a trick question, all right? So, um, I think sometimes we wrestle with, um, does God need to be praised? Does God need to be worshiped? It's kind of the, some people will ask the question, does it make God like a megalomaniac? Uh, and I think C.S. Lewis's answer that he gives in his reflection on the Psalms is one of the most profound um, sections of theology that has really impacted my thinking. And it ties right in here to Psalm 84. But I remember some years ago, we had a guy in the church that he didn't like to come to church. He didn't like to come until the preaching of the word, because that was the important part. And all this singing stuff, man, when we, like, why, do we, why do you guys do all this singing? Couldn't wait to be done with that. You know, I'll just come late, I'll come for the sermon. I'll come for the important part of the message, important part of the service. Well, this is what C.S. Lewis says. And this is kind of an extended quote, so I want you to listen. He says this, the world rings with praise. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. The good critics found something to praise in many imperfect works. The bad ones continually narrowed the list of books we might be allowed to read. The healthy and unaffected man, even if luxuriously brought up and widely experienced in good cookery, could praise a very modest meal. The dyspeptic and the snob found fault with all. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise always seems to be inner health made audible. I had not noticed that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge them to join us in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? The psalmist is telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at a turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to keep silent because the people you're with care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with 
which he says the perfect hearer died a year ago. This is, this is so even when our expressions are inadequate, as of course they usually are. But how if one could really and fully, fully praise even such things to perfection, utterly get out in poetry or music or paint the upsurge of appreciation that almost bursts you, then indeed, object would be fully appreciated and our delight would have attained perfect development. The worthier the object, the more intense the delight would be. If it were possible for a soul created fully, I mean up to the full measure conceivable in a finite being, to appreciate, that is to love and delight in, in the worthiest object of all, and simultaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression, then that soul would be in supreme beatitude. It is along these lines that I find it easiest to understand the Christian doctrine that heaven is a state in which angels now and men hereafter are perpetually employed in praising God. This does not mean, as it can so dismally suggest, that it's like being in church. (laughs) For our services, both in conduct and in power to participate, are merely attempts at worship, never fully successful, often 99.9% failures, sometimes total failures. It's not real encouraging here. We're not writers, but pupils in the writing school for most of the falls and bruises and aching muscles and the severity of the exercise far outweigh those few moments in which we were, to our own astonishment, actually galloping without terror and without disaster. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing, fully is to to enjoy, is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. And so that makes sense, doesn't it? Does it not make sense that when there was two outs in the ninth inning last night for anybody who stayed up and your team is tied and it looks like it's going into extras and the Yankees came back to tie it in the top of the ninth and you're a Houston Astros fan and your guy gets up and hits a walk-off home run and you're going to the World Series because of a walk-off in the bottom of the ninth with two outs and you're just going to do, well, why can't we just watch the highlights tomorrow on, on YouTube? You want to be there. You want to experience it. And what are you going to do if that happens? You're going to scream your head off if you're a fan because you love your team and you love where they're going. We love our team and we love where we're going. This is Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My flesh, my heart and flesh sing for joy or literally cry out to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself while she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever sing in your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, They make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God 
than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Psalm 84, let's pray. Lord, renew our affections. May your kindness and your goodness lead us to repentance. May this cry of one who is in love with you be the cry of our hearts. May it also expose where we fall short for we are half-hearted creatures. And Lord, we pray that we would leave, leave aside the mud pies and we'd know more of what it is to have hearts set on pilgrimage, longing to be with you. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in a sermon series entitled The Good Life, and we've been seeing from Scripture certain habits, certain disciplines that we're to embrace, and because we embrace certain habits and disciplines, that also means we're going to have to make some choices of letting others go and refraining from other things that would bring us down and hinder us in our race. Well, today as we look at Psalm 84, we're looking at this psalm through the good life lens as the psalmist has a running refrain here of a happy life or a blessed life. Three times in this psalm. Verses one to four, blessed are those dwelling in your house. Verses five to eight, blessed are those whose strength is in you. And verses 10 to 12, Blessed are those who trust in you. So let's follow along here. The first one is happy are those who dwell in your house, verses one to four. And this word blessed, there's two Hebrew words. We've shared this before. This is the asher word, or asher, where we get the word happy. Happy are those who dwell in your house, verses one to four. And as you read this along, if you were just to read Psalm 84, and you hadn't read this before, and and you didn't know what the object was, if those were held from you, And you just read, how lovely, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts. What would you say you were reading? You would say, I'm reading a love letter. I'm reading about someone who's in love with somebody. And clearly that's what we have here, is that it begins with how lovely, and soul longs, and this idea of faints is is being spent and consumed and poured out. All my energy, my time, my heart, my affection is for the courts of the living God. My flesh and my heart, they literally cry out for God. This psalmist loves God. And it's some, somewhat, we, these desire psalms are, are very important. Psalm 63, Psalm 27. And there's others as well. We read a little bit of Psalm 73. This is a, Spurgeon called this psalm the pearl of the psalms. The affections are so warm for God. And we're told clearly who the object of the affection is. It's the Lord of armies. It's the Lord of hosts. This is the one who's the Lord of all the angels in heaven. Yahweh himself, the living God. Derek Kidner, my favorite commentator's He titles Psalm 84, the pool of home. The pool, P-U-L-L, of home. It's a pool toward home. Longing is written all over this psalm. 
This is a eager and homesick man. And this psalm was a psalm that was a psalm of pilgrimage. There were certain psalms that were sung, like the Psalm of Ascents. And there's songs that are songs about pilgrimage because certain times in the year for the feast, the people of God in Israel would make a journey up to Zion. And Zion at that time was Jerusalem because in Jerusalem dwelt the temple. And and the temple is where God himself was and the ark was. And God's presence was there and God's blessing was there. And this psalmist can't wait to make his journey. And he can't wait to see the courts of the living God. Just let me see the courts. Today, people make a journey to see a baseball stadium or a football stadium. And why do they love that particular stadium? They either love the stadium or the field because they love the sport or they love the team, right? So Pastor Ben, he's not here for me to tease him. You know, he went down to Dallas and what do you think he did when he was in Dallas? He, got, he sent all these, put all these pictures on Facebook of him touring the stadium of the Cowboys. He thought he had arrived or something, you know? And uh, I'd remind him of the last three weeks, but I, I won't go there as a Redskin fan because it's been a lot more than that for us. But, but he toured the stadium because he loves the team. If you're a lover of tennis, there's one place that you'd like to go that would be unlike any other, to walk out to center court of Wimbledon and just to look around and to see, and imagine being able to just to hit at center court of Wimbledon. Would that not be cool or what? Or if you love to play golf, there's one golf course that you'd want to play above the, above the rest. And my father-in-law had a chance when he was, was at high school or college to play Augusta. And he, hmm? Just a, what? Well, I thought it was the play. Well, we can verify that with him. Don't take away from the story, honey. (laughs) I really do think it was the play, but he had a date. He had a date, and so he declined. And it was one of those great regrets in life, like, was she that good of a date? And the answer was no. He really wishes that he had gone to play the course at Augusta. Now... The psalmist here can't wait to get to the courts. It's the first site of entry and getting to the temple. All these other things are smaller loves. For this psalmist can't wait to go to the courts, to the temple, to meet with God. And when he gets to the courts and recalls the birds in the courts, he's envious of even the sparrow and the swallow because they get to make their nest at the temple, at the altar, and how sweet. This is for the psalmist as he's reminding himself, they get to stay, they're at home. But for us, we're pilgrims and we're not home yet. Sunday school today, we were considering in in our class how Israel just wanted the ark of God to lead them into battle. Bring out the ark because it was useful. It was their rabbit's foot, so to speak. And it was basically just for a veiled protection and God was useful. And what the psalmist is showing us here is that God isn't somebody that's just a a rabbit's foot or a cross to hang from your, your rear view mirror or a Bible to put in your car just so your car will somehow be protected or you put the Bible in your room so that God, no. What the psalmist sees is something that, that 
if you're just looking to God as a means to another end, and if the means is protection, or the means is blessing, or the means is wealth, or the means is health, the psalmist would say, no, that's all idolatry. That's all using God to get something else. The psalmist wants God for God. He loves God. He wants to be with God because he loves him. That's what we see in this psalm. And so is that our heart's desire? Do we want that? God is being sought here because God is glorious. The ancient triad that the Greeks would talk about of seeking virtue was something that's true, something beautiful and good. Well, the psalmist has found all three. It's right here in God. He is the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And your word is truth. Sanctify us in the truth. And here is beauty, the beatific vision, what we all long for, of of following the shadows back to the real source and following the streams to the ocean and and the blessing of where do all these things come from? It's the beatific vision. It's, It's the beholding God, the beauty of God. Show me your glory. And the answer of that is in this life, we are being transformed from glory to glory, we're told, as we behold the risen Christ, as we see him, spiritual, with spiritual eyes. Everything else is just a shadow. It's not the real thing. You might be thinking you're seeking joy and really what you're seeking is momentary pleasure. It's not the real thing. Jonathan Edwards in his famous quote said, fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but God is the substance. They are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. They are but streams, but God is the ocean. And in his book, Religious Affection, he said the first effect of the power of God in the heart in regeneration is to give the heart a divine taste or sense, to cause it to have a relish of the loveliness and sweetness of the supreme excellency of the divine nature. What he's saying is regeneration is a change in affections. We are by nature lovers of self. We love ourself with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we love this world, and we do not love God. And when regeneration happens, it's the magnet getting flipped the other way, the magnet that's been repelling and repelling and repelling, and all of a sudden it's flipped, and and now the magnets attract. That's regeneration where the heart all of a sudden desires the beauty of God and all of a sudden the singing and the scriptures, we start to actually taste and see that the Lord is good and not just theoretically but experientially. This is what the heart wants and this is what the heart needs. Josh Moody, who's the pastor at the college church in Wheaton, he says, the church is a drug rehab center where narcissists like you and me learn to kick the habit. And we're here afresh today learning to kick the habit, aren't we? And we repent and we realize it's his kindness and his goodness that leads us to repentance. And it causes us, hopefully, to fear him and to love him, to see how glorious he is. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, I wanna stress what I think that we, or at least I, need more. 
And he's actually referring to Psalm 84, even though he doesn't directly say that, but you can tell that he is. He says, what, this is what I need more of. It's the joy and delight in God which meets us in the Psalms, however loosely or closely in this or that instance that they may be connected with the temple. This is the living center of Judaism. These poets knew far less reason than we for loving God. They didn't know that he offered them eternal joy, still less that he would die to, to win it for them. Yet they express a longing for him, for his mere presence, which comes only to the best Christians or to Christians in their best moments. They long to live all their days in the temple so that they can constantly see the fair beauty of the Lord. Their longing to go up to Jerusalem and appear before the presence of God is like a physical thirst. From Jerusalem, his presence flashes out in perfect beauty. Lacking that encounter with him, their souls are parched like a waterless countryside. They crave to be satisfied with the pleasures of his house. Only there can, can they be at ease like a bird in the nest. One day of those pleasures is better than a lifetime spent elsewhere. And that leads us to verse five through eight. Is blessed are those whose strength is in you whose heart are the highways to Zion. Well, the idea of highways to Zion is actually not in, it's actually not in the Hebrew there, uh, verse five, the end there, but we do get this idea of Zion at the end of verse seven. But the idea is that the heart is set on pilgrimage. Some of you may have grown up singing uh, the hymn, we're marching to Zion. We've sung it a few times in our church it's never really wonderfully caught on, um, at least the way we grew up singing it in the Baptist church. We would really get rocking and swaying to some of these. Um, and uh, so for those of you who don't know the hymn, here's, here's the, the great lyrics from the, from the end of the, of the song. It says, the hills of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. We're already experiencing, you see. And it says, then let our songs abound and every tear be dry. We're marching through Emmanuel's ground to fairer worlds on high. We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching onward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. And so what is Zion? What is Zion? Well, for the people of God, it was coming to Jerusalem. It was coming to the temple. It was, it was coming to God. Well, how do you do that now? Well, you come, in part, you come to church. The temple's right here, Jesus says, right? God comes to dwell within us. He comes right here into our hearts, but then he also comes corporately into the body, and we become a dwelling place of God. And there's this corporate gathering. And, and, it's, and it's in part, though, because ultimately where Zion is, is, well, where is the real dwelling of God? Where is, where is God glorious, and where are the saints glorified? And, it, and we're longing to get to heaven, and yet Hebrews 12 puts the already and not yet and puts them both together and says, when you come here right now, you didn't come to you didn't come to Mount Sinai this morning. You came to Mount Zion. You came to the heavenly Jerusalem. And you're joining right now with thousands and thousands of angels in worship. And they're looking down with us and they share in our worship. And the spirits of just men made perfect. And somehow there's this something mystical. We call it the, the in theology, we have terms for that. But it, there's this idea that they are looking down on us and they're wanting us to finish the race. And we come to God, and we come to, to the blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel 
And Abel's blood was crying out for justice. Jesus' blood cries out for mercy. And so you get both this morning. You get the already and a little taste of the not yet. And you get to come to the table reminded, you're on, your, you're on the pilgrimage. We're on our way. And we're already experiencing, the, the, the hills are already yielding thousands of, of sweets. And yet we have here a reference to the Valley of Baca. And there's only one reference to this valley in the Bible. But the consensus of commentators is that this valley is a valley of, of weeping. And that's how the, the Septuagint, which came 250 years BC, it translated the Hebrews. That's how they interpret it. I, I found myself more and more liking the New Living Translation. I'm a word for word guy. But if you like a thought for thought translation, I like the scholars of the New Living Translation. This is how, and I find them helpful at times to understand, well, what do these, some of these mean? This is how they translate Psalm 84, 6, New Living Translation. When they walk through the valley of weeping, it will become a place of refreshing springs where pools of blessing collect after the rains. I think that's the idea of what the psalmist is actually getting at. And it reminds me of the Valley of Tears reference that's in the Heidelberg Catechism. And some of you may remember that. And the question 26 of the Heidelberg Catechism is, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? And the Heidelberg Catechism will go through the the whole Apostles' Creed, but it asks questions. And what do you believe? And what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? Well, what do you believe? And the answer is that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of nothing made heaven and earth with all that is in them, who likewise upholds and governs the same by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father, in whom so I trust as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and further, that whatever evil he sends upon me in this veil of tears, he will turn to my good." For he is able to do it, being almighty God and willing also being a faithful father. That is some rich theology, isn't it? We go through the valley of Baca. There is no valley of Baca in heaven. And lastly, blessed are those who trust in you. Verses 10 to 12. We have this famous quote from this psalm, probably the most memorable is one day in your house is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. What a great statement of growth and grace. Here's how the the New Living Translation gives it. A single day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather be a gatekeeper in the house of my God than live the good life in the homes of the wicked. Where are you looking for the good life? This morning, the psalmist has found it. Have you found it in some sin, some secret fantasy, adultery or pornography or some perversion of lust? It's easy to fall into that trap. And Augustine, the great early church father, was in the bonds of lust. And initially he prayed to God, deliver me from my lust, but oh Lord, not yet. And at the heart of this great book that has lasted the test of time, the Confessions of Augustine, 
He's writing about, O Lord, my helper, my redeemer, I shall now tell and confess to the glory of your name how you released me from the fetters of lust which held me so tightly shackled from my slavery to the things of this world. And he writes and he says, I was held back by mere trifles. They plucked at my garment of flesh and whispered, are you going to dismiss us? From this moment, we shall never be with you again forever and ever. And while I stood trembling at the barrier on the other side, I could see the chaste beauty of countenance in all her serene, unsullied joy. And she modestly beckoned me to cross over and to hesitate no more. She stretched out loving hands to welcome and embrace me. He goes on. I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and gave way to the tears which now streamed from my eyes. In his misery, in my misery, I kept crying, how long shall I go on saying tomorrow, tomorrow? Why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? And all at once, I heard the sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say, but again and again, it repeated the refrain, take up and read, take it and read. And at, the, at, at this, I looked up thinking hard, whether there should be any kind of game in which the children used to chant words like this, but I couldn't remember ever hearing them before. I stemmed my flood of tears and stood up telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my book of scripture and read the first passage on which my eyes should fall. And so I hurried back to the place where Alpheus was sitting and I seized the book of Paul's epistles and I opened it and in silence I read the first passage on which my eyes fell, which was Romans 13, 13 and 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime and not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And then he said... I wished I had no wish to read more and no need to do so. For in an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all darkness of doubt was dispelled. He was, what we would say, regenerated. He had a sense of affection for God. And then he goes on and says, what I once feared to lose was now a delight to dismiss. You turn them out and enter to take their place. Pleasanter than any pleasure, but not to flesh and blood. Brighter than all light, yet more inward than any secret recess. Higher than any honor, but not to those who think themselves sublime. Already my mind was free of the biting cares of place-seeking or desire for gain or of wallowing in self-indulgence, of scratching the itch of lust. And now I was talking with you. My Lord, my God, my radiance, my wealth, and my salvation narcissistic Augustine had now entered into the rehab center and he's found something better and he comes into the church and now he's a changed man and Augustine is now experiencing what it's like to trust God. It's what the psalmist is saying. Better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. You know what he's saying? Better to be a doorkeeper? He's saying God's worst is better than the devil's best. Everything that the world has to offer, stack it all up, put it all out there, and then give me the lowliest job in the house of God, and I'll take that, because he'd found what his heart wanted and needed, that the lowest station in connection with the Lord's house is better than the highest position among the godless. Have you discovered that for yourself? 
You see, that's what the idea of blessed is the one who trusts in you. Your affections now have been captured and now you're happy to follow him and recognize his ways are better. I hope that's your heart and your love for him. If not, pray and ask him to change your heart and give you a heart like the psalmist. Let's pray. Lord, now as we come to your table, Lord, we ask that you turn our minds and our hearts and our affections toward Jesus, the one who laid down his life for us. And may we consider him and may we grow and be changed from strength to strength, from glory to glory. For we ask in your name, amen.